So let's pray. Father, I pray that as we start our time together, that you would remind us who you are. Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts, our minds, our imaginations with the reality that Jesus is unlike any other. Lord, I pray that you would begin that from the moment we look at your word till the moment we lay our heads on our pillow tonight. May the name, the authority, and the power of Jesus rescue. And may he remind us of how he's rescued us. It's in his matchless name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can uh, have a seat and grab your Bibles if you don't mind. <clears throat> We're in the book of Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 9 this morning. But I'm, I'm going to warn you ahead of time. I'm going to give you a little, uh, little heads up. I also want you to, if you could do this, I don't know, this might be, actually, I'm going to teach you a Bible study tool right now. Most Bibles come with it. It's this fancy ribbon thing. It's not to like tie your children to their Bible or anything like the old mittens. But if you would also turn to Matthew 17 and maybe lay a mark there, whether that be your, your fancy Bible study tool ribbon here or uh, maybe a pen or uh, a bulletin, a fingernail, I mean, whatever you need to throw in there so that you hold your place. I wanna, we're going to spend most of our time in Mark chapter 9, but I also I want to go back to Matthew 17. They both tell the same story and then... And Many times when you get the same story from different perspectives, uh, it, it, it's enlightening, it brings some clarity, and in particular, this morning's story, I want to make sure that we look at uh, Matthew's account as well. It's going to take us a little while to get to Matthew, but I promise we're going to get there, and I don't want you to be like, well, he didn't tell us. I'm telling you, we're going to get to Matthew 17 at some point. So as I've uh, kind of been praying about this, transfiguration is a... Um, difficult topic to try to tackle. The Transfiguration is a popular text, and yet it's also a text that most people don't really understand. The Transfiguration is this moment that occurs in the life of Jesus that most of us look at and think that Jesus has superpowers. Okay? It's way more significant than that. And so my hope, my goal, and even my prayer this week is that no matter where you are on your continuum of your knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, that when you leave this morning, you love him a little bit more. So if that means you've known Jesus for dozens upon dozens of years, then my prayer for you today is that as lo you look at who Jesus really is, that when you leave this place, you, you just appreciate him that much more. Maybe you just met Jesus. My hope and prayer for you is that you're not intimidated by these verses and this topic and this story that occurs and how different it actually looks. But instead, that when we are done this morning and you're walking out to your car, you are gazing towards the sky, and the only thing that can come out of you is, thank you, Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't know him. And that, that could be for a number of reasons. Maybe you're here because mama twisted your arm and dragged you here. That happens. And I also believe that's the Holy Spirit wooing you just happens to be in the form of your mama. Maybe you're here because you're an antagonist. And you want to poke and prod at friends that you have. I don't know. But you're here. And Lord willing, not, that's, that's, he is willing. If I'm obedient... 
then what you're going to see this morning is a picture of the biblical Jesus. What you're going to see this morning is Jesus himself answering the question, who do you say that I am? That you talked about last week. And my prayer and my hope is if you don't know him, that this morning you have a collision with the compassionate Christ. Start reading Mark chapter 9. I'll start in verse 1. It says this, Then Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. All right, full stop. You ready? I hope so. I don't know what that means. Verse 2. <laughs> just, just. I really don't. I mean, Patrick and I kind of joked about it this week, but he didn't address it last week, and I'm not addressing it this week, and that's on purpose. The reality is there's so many different options of what that can mean. I tend to lean towards the fact that as Jesus looked at his disciples and said, there are some of you 12 who are standing here who aren't going to die before you see the full glory of the kingdom of God. And then verse 2 happens, and three disciples go with him, and they are exposed to the full glory of God. That's, that's one of about two dozen options. So I will not die on that hill. Verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. I'm going to stop there and address that, just those first couple of verses. There's a lot there. So I'm going to address a bunch of those first. First, you talk about the mountain. So for us, like, okay, so we went to a mountain. Um, Penny and Murray Kenyon right now are in Israel. And uh, uh, Murray sent me a picture of the Mount of Transfiguration, what they believe is that mountain. It could be a, a number of mountains. It could have been uh, Mount Tabor. It could be Mount Hermon. But, but the point of this isn't to identify what mountain it is. The point of what happens here in Mark is so that the readers who are familiar with the Old Testament history of Israel would go, ah, I recognize this. Six days, one of the only times Mark uses a time or temporal marker in his writing. After six days, he went up the high mountain. That would reflect back to Exodus. Moses, who would take three named men with him, Aaron, um, and Nadab and Abihu, couldn't remember the other two. And then, and then 70 who would stay off the mountain. But these three would come with him, and then Moses would go a little further. And the, the cloud of God's presence would descend upon Moses as he was on the top of the mountain. And Moses had to be in that cloud for six days before he would have an actual interaction with God. So the mountain is probably a reference to jog their memory to that. Now let's get to the meat of the matter. Peter, James, and John. Why did they always get to go? Right? I mean, you hear Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John went and saw the little girl get raised with it. Peter, James, and John went into the garden. Peter, James, and John are here. Well, why is it always Peter, James, and John? Well, there's a lot of theories on that, too. Um, was it because Jesus loved them more than he loved the other disciples? So there's, uh, John is one of them. John actually wrote the Gospel of John. And throughout his Gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. That's kind of like the kid in your family saying, and I'm the one mom loves most. 
Okay. The one who fights for that the most, no, mom loves me most, mom loves me most. You're pretty sure mom don't love that one most. So I'm just saying, when John keeps saying, I'm the disciple he loved most, you never know. You, just, you can't give yourself your own nickname, that kind of thing. So that's kind of what John did. I don't think it's because Jesus loved them most. Were these three more receptive to spiritual truths? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Jesus would know, but I don't know. I tend to think it's kind of like youth group. Kind of, let, me, let me explain this. A friend of mine used this, and I, I think this is exactly it. Okay, so, so you're the youth guy youth leader, and you're in front of the whole youth group, and you have an errand to run. And you're like, hey, guys, listen, y'all stay here. I'm going to get in the truck, and I'm going to go. But you all stay here, talk amongst yourself, play a couple games. I'll be back in about an hour. Okay, I can trust you, right? Yeah, see, you know, exactly. But I can trust you, right? All right, so I'm going to go. I'm going to get in the truck. Oh, oh, before I go, by the way, you three with me, because you always get into trouble. So Jesus grabs Peter James and John, and throws them in the truck. Because they're the troublemakers, right? I mean, think about it. Peter, you know, you got enough to say about Peter. I always make fun of Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Well, you kind of got the picture there. James and John. Come on now. James and John. Jesus just finishes talking about how he is going to be betrayed, arrested, put on trial, beaten, mocked, crucified laid in a tomb, risen from the dead. And James and John are like, and this is exactly what they say later in Mark, we want you to do, Jesus, whatever we ask you. Moms, dads, you know that. We want you to do whatever we say next. <laughs> what are you going to say next? I ain't falling for that one. Jesus says, so what is it that you're asking me? We want to sit, one of us on your left side, one of us on your right side. Matthew tells us James and John's mama went to Jesus with that request. Moms, I love you. Sometimes you can humiliate your sons. That would be one of those times to be like, oh. Now, James and John, knowing them, they were probably like, yeah, mom, go get them. And the other boys are like, those boys, we're taking them out back after mom turns her head. Okay? So, so perhaps it's that. We're, we're not really sure. But what we do know is, and, and you read the story, you do know Peter, James, and John had their share of mistakes, and I praise God for that story. That means the biggest screw-ups among us in this room, and I won't name names even though I may be thinking faces. Most of them are your pastors. We're, we're the biggest screw-ups that there are, and yet God can do abundantly above and beyond anything we could possibly imagine. Praise God. My constant fear is some of you are going to figure out we don't know what we're doing. So here, let me get it out of the way with. We don't know what we're doing. Our responsibility and goal as children of God, forget as pastors, as children of God, forget as elders, our primary goal and responsibility of children of God is to know and love God most and get out of his way. And that's what we pray that we could do even though we screwed up along the way. Mark drops this word like it's a common word here in verse 2. He was transfigured in front of them, because that just clears everything up when you hear that word, right? The, the Greek word behind that is the word that we get our word metamorphosis from, change to become different, like a, like a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, or a tadpole becomes a frog, or you become a normal human being after your cup of coffee. This metamorphosis 
that occurs, okay? And that's what's happening here, that, that, that Jesus is transformed, metamorphosized, if that's really even a word. He is changed in front of their eyes, and, and it talks about the glory of God suddenly explodes out of Jesus. I mean, picture that. It just poof. What has been hidden throughout his entire life is suddenly visible for these three disciples. The glory of God that is in Jesus himself explodes out of him at the transfiguration. And I would argue that the truest miracle in this moment that the disciples become aware of isn't actually the transfiguration as it displays the glory of Jesus. I would argue the truest miracle is that the full divinity and glory of God has been in Jesus this entire time and all we've seen to this point is humanity. Jesus presses pause on the miracle that is Philippians chapter 2 where he emptied himself and made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant in the likeness of humanity and he presses pause on that miracle so now we don't see his humanity. We see his full divinity and glory. Max Licato says that Jesus in this moment is wearing his pre-Bethlehem and post-resurrection wardrobe. So how do you how do you describe a moment like that? How do you how can how can you possibly put that into words? So Matthew has an account of the transfigurers. You don't need to turn there yet. This is that's a little bit later. But Matthew's account, when he talks about this, says it was his that Jesus' face was shining like the sun. You get the picture. Matthew's just like, man, now I'm trying, trying to describe it. How do I picture that? As I picture it, what I see is Jesus standing there, and all of a sudden, all of the force, all of the energy, all of the, the light and the heat and the power that is contained in the sun is suddenly contained in the face of Jesus, and boom, it just explodes off of him. And that's a visual. That's a visual. Luke and his description of the transfiguration describes it as, the word he uses is, is dazzling white. That word dazzling is the word that is used for a flash of lightning. As Luke is wrestling with how to describe this, he, you can almost imagine him picturing it. You're walking along at night and it is pitch black and your eyes have adjusted to the night and suddenly there is a flash of lightning that's just, whoa! Mark, Mark's way of describing it is saying, you know, when you give mom your t-shirt and it's really dirty and it comes back really white, it was like that. Mark sells this so short compared to everybody else. He says it was like like a t-shirt that was bleached as white like no professional launderer could possibly get it. Brought to you by Clorox. I mean, it's it's this crazy moment that occurs as Mark just falls short. Now, in his defense, white garments were not very popular at the time for uh, obvious reasons. If you're walking dusty roads, your white garment would not stay white very long, which might be actually why he describes it this way as well. But that is what caught his attention, regardless of how they described it. This is a huge, huge moment. Three had the opportunity, after just hearing Jesus talk about his death and resurrection, 
to see his glorification and realize that his glorification is not incompatible with his suffering. As difficult as the next weeks would be for Jesus and his disciples, as final as it may appear, the hope, particularly of these three disciples, is in knowing that he will rise. He will ascend to the right hand of the Father in heaven. He will return. He will redeem with all the glory and power and majesty and might. He will come crashing and split the sky in half as the Savior who comes with tattoos on his thighs, King of kings and Lord of lords. And everyone will bow at his majesty and glory. His suffering doesn't minimize his glory. It actually maximizes it. And that is a message these disciples are going to need, most certainly. Verse 4 is, is where it gets, again, like it couldn't get weirder. Verse 4, Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So, so you, got, you got Peter, James, and John sitting there, seeing this radiant glory coming off of Jesus. Then there's two other people there, and we're told it's, it's Moses and it's Elijah. And for you and I, it's kind of like, okay, Old Testament characters, that's cool. But for them, this is a, a huge moment. Those are the, the two heroes of the faith for them. Moses, the, the giver of the law. Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. And here they are, standing before them, speaking with Jesus. So, so okay, I ask crazy, goofy, stupid questions when I'm studying the Bible. The question I have is, how did they know it was them? I mean, perhaps it's Elijah and Moses come and they see Jesus and there's a greeting between them. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, how are you? Maybe the disciples heard, I don't know. Or, or perhaps, perhaps there is this old man now standing before the disciples holding a staff and, and, and stone uh, tablets in his arm and the guys are like, that's Moses. And then, then Elijah stands there with a staff and a name tag. <laughs> What do you got? Elijah, I got nothing. So, but somehow they know. Somehow they know it's Moses and Elijah. And why are they there? Why have they appeared? There's a couple of reasons that are, are proposed. They're, they're both faithful servants of God who did God's will, suffered for it, even rejected by God's people, and then later were vindicated by God. So some believe that Moses and Elijah are a type of Jesus in the Old Testament who are standing before Jesus to encourage him uh, in his continued obedience to the Father. Some believe that they were a representation of the law and the prophets, which would make sense. Moses is the deliverer of the law. Uh, Elijah was the greatest of the prophets. So it's potential that they, they were representing the, the law and the prophets. But probably most likely, they were meant to create in the people a realization that the day of the Lord was here. Prophecy was that Elijah was to return before the day of the Lord. The prophecy was that a prophet like Moses was to come at the dawn of the day of the Lord. 
in that moment, what you are seeing develop before you is the already of the already and not yet of Christ's return. And they stand there talking with Jesus. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what they're actually talking about. Luke tells us they were talking about the future departure of Jesus that was about to happen in Jerusalem. So, so Moses and Elijah are standing there. Get this. Get, try to wrap your head around this. Moses and Elijah are standing there. They're talking to Jesus about the fact that Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem. He is going to die. He's going to be put in a tomb. And he's going to rise again from the grave. And Moses and Elijah are having this conversation with Jesus. This is, this is a concept that they might have known a little bit about, but they didn't fully understand. They knew, uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us, they knew that when they were talking about those future events, when they were talking about this day of the Lord that would come, when they were talking about this already, this Messiah, this one who would come and then return, they, they knew that it wasn't for them because they couldn't quite grasp it. They were writing it for the people in the future to fully understand it. It's spoken of in 1 Peter that as this is laid out, the plan of the gospel, that, that Christ would come and suffer for the sins of all mankind, that, that he would be buried and then raised again from the dead. That as they spoke of that, it, it says that the angels long to peer into it because they don't quite understand it either. And here's Moses and Elijah having this back and forth conversation with Jesus. Think about that. With Jesus. With the one that they have been looking forward to their entire lives, the one they had served throughout all of their ministry, the one that they had prophesied about, the blessed hope of Israel. I'm going to tell you this right now. I don't think Peter and James and John were the only ones dumbfounded in that moment. I think Moses and Elijah were standing there looking at the Messiah in awe. It's a huge, glorious, historical, theologically significant moment. One that had never been seen before, one that will never be seen again. It's this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that brings us to verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, stop. Think about this for a minute. Here is this moment that nobody can fully understand or explain, this glorious moment, this thing that Peter is so very privileged to be a part of. It's logical to Peter to be on the mountaintop with James and John, Moses, Elijah, the transfigured Jesus, and feel like he needs to be the one to start talking. And, and what he does <laughs> is he me-monsters this thing. Some of you will know what me-monstering is, most of you will not, so I will explain. Me-monstering is something that was introduced to our family um, by a comedian named Brian Regan, and the concept is this, whenever you tell a story, somebody immediately tells a story that makes it about them. You don't know anybody like that, right? If you don't, I'm sorry, you're a me-monster. Um, so in our home, and you may see this if we're hanging out as a family, it's a good nature most of the time. It's very subtle, but if one of our kids makes it, or it's not even one of our kids, who am I lying about? It's just, if any of us, it doesn't matter if it's me or Steph, it doesn't matter. If one of us me monsters in the middle of somebody else's story, the rest of the family does this. It's the picture of handing somebody a me monster trophy. So if you see us standing around and go, 
Well, Peter right here, this glorious, magnificent moment is occurring, and Peter's like, listen to the first thing he says. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. <laughs> Why are you talking, Peter? What, 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 what? Even a fool appears wise when he keeps his mouth shut. Peter opens his mouth and removes the idea that he might be wise. Why is he talking? We're told uh, in verse 6 because he didn't know what to say. Oh, that makes sense. Unfortunately, it makes sense. Because that's me. And I don't know. Hey, watch it, man. Oh, amen that. <laughs> Come on. Welcome back, Robert. <laughs> oh, all right, sorry, I didn't mean to call you out, brother. <laughs> the, the reality is, is, like, for me, it's like I just start talking. Like, I don't know what to say, so I'm going to say something. And, man, that gives me a lot of trouble. Peter does the exact same thing. Peter, why are you talking? And then he talks more. Boy, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So why does he, why does he want to set up three tents? Now, there's a feeling that, that Peter wants to memorialize this amazing moment in his life. There are commentators that believe that there is a certain inflection that should be given to Peter's statement, uh, it's good for us to be here. If you, this is the idea, phew, boy, Jesus, you are lucky we're here. It's a good thing we're here. And Peter just needed to learn if he's on a mountain with Jesus. Moses and Elijah, it's probably not about him. One of the reasons that they offer that he may be building a tent is because he wants to stay on the mountaintop. He wants to make it a permanent fixture because he's having this amazing experience where everything is connecting. Have you ever had that before? Maybe it's in a worship service or an event where you're just, you're just there and everything is connecting. The music is, is hitting exactly where it needs to. Even my incessant dribbling isn't like making your ears bleed and you're you're hearing the word of God and you're feeling close to God. You feel like in that moment, your eyes are closed, your arms are extended, your hands, holy hands are raised, and you feel like if you open your eyes, you would see Jesus in that moment. And you don't want to leave. It's so good that we're here. Can't we just stay? No. The answer is no. That mountaintop experience for, for Peter, for the disciples, was, wasn't meant for them to park on that experience. It was to get off the mountain. It was to run to the bottom to see the needs of the people who were clamoring at the very bottom of that mountain. It was to charge your batteries on Sunday morning when you sit in this place, to be encouraged and to encourage other people to get off the hill and to love other people best. Peter wants to build three tents perhaps because he wants to memorialize an amazing moment in his life. Perhaps he wants to make this a permanent experience, but also perhaps he sees two monsters of the faith, Moses and Elijah, and he wants to memorialize all three of them equally. Equally. Verse 7. A cloud appears. 
it overshadows them. A voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Another account says that as Peter was saying, it is good that we are here. Let's, let's build three tents for you. It says, as Peter was speaking, the cloud descended and the voice came out. Peter's still saying, man, I can build you a tent. What kind of tent do you want? What color do you want? Yellow, red, blue, black. I can, I'm working on a two-story one. Let me see what I can do. As he's saying these things, the voice comes out and says, this is my son. Listen to him, which in the Greek is, shut up, Peter. Listen to him. It is hard to hear the voice of God when you're always talking. Listen to him. I'm asked often, does God speak? My answer is yes. Does he speak out loud? My answer again is yes, as long as you read this out loud. This is God's word. Listen to him. If I don't stop, if I don't shut up, if I don't allow God's word to be heard in my own life, I put myself in a miserable position. And God the Father here is saying, I want you to know me, but the way to know me is to listen to my son, Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God made visible in flesh, glorified right here before your very eyes. You want to know who God is? You know God through his son. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. That's John chapter 14. And, and, and it's fascinating to me. This cloud comes. It overshadows them. The voice comes from God. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And when they look around, they no longer see anybody except for Jesus. In this moment, the two heroes are bumped to the side. They disappear, and Jesus is left alone and it confirms that he is the climax of salvation history and the fulfillment of what Moses and Elijah came to accomplish, not their equal. And now you can turn to Matthew 17. Well, Mark infers this happens. Matthew spells it out specifically. Matthew 17, look at verse 6. When the disciples heard the voice of God, this is my beloved son whom I will please listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Why? Why were they terrified? They were terrified because they know what comes next. Death. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The glory of God, the voice of God, the presence of God, no man can possibly stand before it, before him in his holiness. Uh, Exodus chapter 24, when Moses is going up and ascending the mountain to see God, to talk to God, God's instructions are clear. You bring three with you, and if anybody else even touches the mountain that I am on, they will die. Here, the, similar to Exodus, the cloud, the presence, the glory of God descends, and the Father speaks out loud, and they fall down. 
because they know the judgment and the wrath of God is coming and they are terrified. Verse 7. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except for Jesus alone. They have fallen on their faces before the glory and holiness and majesty and might of God. After just hearing his voice, they fall on their faces, terrified because they're going to die. And Jesus walks over and it says he touches them. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus' touch is usually reserved for healing. And it's not very different here, is it? Because they deserved to die as they came into conflict and, and, and contact with the holiness of God. Here, Jesus' touch calms their fear, and when they look up, they see Jesus is present, and that changes everything. And the words of Christ change it exponentially more. Get up. Don't be afraid. See, there's coming a day when every single one of us is going to be in the presence of God himself. His holiness, his glory, his power, his might, and his majesty. And our only response will be that of the disciples. We're to fall on our faces in front of him because who can possibly stand before that God? Jesus says, get up. You can stand before this God. Why? Because the answer of who Jesus is isn't just a good teacher. He's not someone with the morality of Santa Claus. He's the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the only one who is able to stand on his own before the Father. He is the only one who is holy. And he came and he made himself of no reputation and became obedient to death, even death of a cross, for you. For those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he became their propitiation. He became the one who turned the wrath of God into God's pleasure. He became a payment that satisfied the wrath of God. And on the cross, when he pushed up on those nail-pierced feet and he said, it is finished, he paid in full the sin debt that you and I owe. And if you would trust him, transfers his righteousness to you. Only Jesus can do that for you. You can't do it for yourself. So again, I don't know why you're here this morning. I don't know where you stand on your continuum with Jesus. But I want to encourage you that if to this point you have done nothing but reject Jesus, I don't think you fully understand who he is.
Because he didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. He came to pick you up so that you could stand before the Father. <laughs> and I don't know about you, I tend to wrestle with doubts from time to time. So I don't know if that's you in your walk with Christ for five years or you in your walk with Christ like it's been for me now, a little quick math, 30 years. There's times when doubt comes. And we want proof. We want proof that we can stand before the Father. We want proof that what Jesus did was effective and complete. We want proof. So, so let me do this two ways. This is, this is free because it just came to mind. Um, first, for those of you that doubt and wrestle with doubts in your salvation, th this is how I would encourage you. You don't need to remember the exact time or place. You don't need to remember all of the exact circumstances that surrounded your conversion or your belief in Jesus Christ. All you need to do right now is answer a simple question. Are you trusting in Jesus for your standing before God? Because if the answer is yes right now, no matter how many doubts you have in your heart, that is a glorious picture of salvation. So where are you trusting? Are you leaning on Christ and on Christ alone? Right now. Is that what you're doing? How do I know it's effective? How do I know the finished work of Christ on the cross paid for my sin? How can I know? Uh, I'm flipping back to, to the book of Mark here, in Mark chapter 9. I love this part, and uh, for time's sake, I'm going to have to just do this last little chunk here and not be able to continue. That's all right. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, now think about that for a moment. So here's Peter, James, and John having seen everything they saw. They're coming down off the mountain. I am sure it's not a quiet descent. I'm sure like, can you believe that? I mean, Moses was much taller than I expected. <laughs> Maybe they're like, was that, who was that other guy? I don't know, and Jesus is like, Elijah. Oh, it was Elijah, yeah, of course. I, knew that. I don't know, <laughs> pure conjecture. But they're coming down, they're like, beep, 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 beep. I'm sure, 100 miles an hour, particularly Peter. I'm guessing Peter is like, ah, I've got this all figured out, guys, let me explain it to you. I'm sure Peter's just going nuts on that. And as they're coming down the mountain, verse 9, he's, Jesus orders them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Catch this question. They kept this word to themselves, asking, what does rising from the dead even mean? You want proof? The grave's empty. You want evidence that the payment of Christ was enough to cover your sin and the sin of all those who would trust in him alone? The grave's empty. You, you ask yourself this same question. Ask yourself this same question that the disciples are asking right here. What does rising from the dead mean? Just change the, 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 the tone of it a little bit. So, so what does it mean that the resurrection happened? It means Jesus is the son of God just as he claimed he was. It means the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins has been accepted by God, which guarantees our peace before God. It assures us that we have a high priest who intercedes for us. We, we have a high priest who allows us constant access with God the Father. It guarantees everlasting life for you if you are in Christ. What does the, the resurrection mean? It means we too will rise with him one day. And that comforts some of us 
who've lost loved ones and friends. There'll be a time when the justice of God finally prevails over the brokenness of this fallen world. What does the resurrection even mean? It gives us a real and a vital hope for our future. It changes the way that we live as we gain a glimpse of the greatness of God's power. It changes the way we live because we realize that we have access to that power to live in paths of righteousness, to walk through valleys of the shadow of death, being held by Christ himself. What does the resurrection mean? It means that you're forgiven. That your standing with God is sure. All because the glorious, mighty, powerful, passionate Son of God who laid down his life for you. So who do you say Jesus is? God, I know for a fact that there are people sitting in this room right now who are wrestling with their eternity. I pray that this morning, in this place, in that seat, God, that they would yield to you. That they would lean on Christ and on Christ alone for their salvation. God, without Christ, they're lost. Lord, I pray no one in this room would be able to avoid the question, who do you say Christ is? I pray everybody in this room, whether they're a believer in Jesus Christ or, or, or an agnostic or an atheist, it doesn't matter. I pray that every single one of us would not be able to rest until we answer that question with integrity. Who do we say Jesus is? And then, as we wrestle, we fight, even as we limp through each day, I pray the glorious hope of the resurrection would remind us of what we have in Christ. Now, Lord, we, we would live in light of that hope. Help us to crowd out the whispers of the enemy. Help us to deny the, the temptation that comes to us to, to think it's all on our shoulders. Father, instead, I pray we would listen to what Jesus says. And may we hear the sweet, sweet news that we're a child of God. 